I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we follow the flow of the text to discover how it all fits together. We are drawing near to the end of the book of Leviticus, and here at the end we're in the final of the four main topics of the book. We've gone through these topics many times before, but since this book is in essence the handbook of worship for Hashem, it's important that we recognize these topics and what Leviticus has to say on them. The first was the topic of sacrifice, how to approach Hashem in worship, what attitudes to come before Him with. And for the most part, this topic is one that deals with the individual. It's the individual that brings an Olah offering before Hashem, except in the case of the festivals and the daily offerings. It's the individual that brings the Mincha, except for the bits that accompany the various communal sacrifices. It's the individual that brings the Shlamim sacrifice, and the individual that invites others to join him in this sacrifice. Whether it's something that an individual or family was thankful for, or a vow that an individual had made, the sacrifice was brought by the individual. Others in the community, however, got to participate in this particular sacrifice. And it's the individual that brings a sin sacrifice, except for one in the case of a sin of the community at large. And it's the individual that brings in a sham. The topic of sacrifice is in many ways directed towards individual worship of Hashem. And yet not one of these could be accomplished without the priesthood to officiate, and not a single sacrifice happened in private. After this is the topic of uncleanness, a topic that has little actual meaning for our lives today. Uncleanness is something that applied when there was a tabernacle or a temple, but the topic of uncleanness is also not a topic that we can simply discard. Through this topic and its connection to death, we discover the need that we have as humans for either a cover for our nature or, alternatively, a change of nature before we can approach God. Uncleanness teaches us that we need a Savior, and we find later in Scripture that Hashem provided that Savior for us, and He created a way for that change of nature within us so that we can draw close to Him in the ways that matter. Next came the topic of holiness, a status that permeates the nature of Hashem and one that He bestows on us because of the nature of the relationship that we have with Him. This status is one that we must have to be in relationship with Him, or else Relationship is impossible. And so Leviticus reveals just how we should foster this status of holiness, how we should nurture the gift of holiness and live it out into the world. But Leviticus does not stop there. It also delves deeply into the things that we can do that will revoke the gift of holiness that we've been granted. 
spiritism, sexual immorality, idolatry, eating meat in certain ways, and more can all revoke the holiness that's been granted to a person. But for the most part, we must understand holiness is not something that you get because of what you do. Holiness is who you are, which then affects what you do. And finally, there is our current topic. And it should come as no surprise that the instructions of worship for the individual that we read at the beginning of the book are now mirrored at the end of the book with instructions for communal worship, how the community is to come together to worship Hashem, when the community is expected to come together and to worship Hashem, the expectations that are placed on the community at large and the punishments that can be expected for an individual from the community, and the punishments for the entire community when they fail to live up to these expectations. And that's where we are today. But chapter 24? Chapter 24 seems out of place. How does this chapter address communal worship? On the surface, it seems as if it's a series of three vignettes with a bit of philosophical reasoning for the last. But discerning the theme in this chapter is not as easy as we might expect. So let's read Leviticus 24 and then discuss how this chapter is connected to communal worship. Leviticus 24 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring near to you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of witness in the tent of appointment, Aaron is to arrange it from evening until morning before Hashem continually, a law forever throughout your generations. And he is to arrange the lamps in the clean gold lampstand before Hashem continually. And ye shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah in each cake. And ye shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the clean table before Hashem. And ye shall put clear frankincense on each row, and it shall be on the bread as a remembrance portion, an offering made by fire to Hashem. On every Sabbath he is to arrange it before Hashem continually from the children of Israel, an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the set-apart place, because it is most set-apart to him, from the offerings of Hashem made by fire, an everlasting law. And the son of an Israeli woman, whose father was a Mitzrayim man, went out among the children of Israel, and the Israeli woman's son and the man of Israel strove in the camp. And the Israeli woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed, so they brought him to Moshe. Now his mother's name was Shemalit, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him under guard that it might be declared to them at the mouth of Hashem. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, and all those who heard him lay their hands on his head, and all the congregation shall stone him. And speak to the children of Israel, saying, Anyone who curses his Elohim shall bear his sin. And he who blasphemes the name of Hashem shall certainly be put to death. And all the congregation certainly stone him, the stranger as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he is put to death. And a man who strikes the being of any man shall certainly be put to death. And he who strikes a beast repays it body for body. But when a man inflicts a blemish upon his neighbor, as he has done so, it is done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he inflicts a blemish upon him, so it is done to him. And he who strikes a beast repays it, and he who strikes a man to death is put to death. You are to have one right ruling for the stranger and for the native. I am Hashem your Elohim. And Moshe spoke to the children of Israel, and they brought the one who cursed outside the camp, and stoned him with stones. And the children of Israel did as Hashem commanded Moshe. 
So when we get to this chapter, there's one consensus that nearly everyone agrees on. This chapter is disjointed. There does not seem to be any particular commonality that's being explored throughout this chapter. There are instructions for the menorah, the lampstand that sat inside the tabernacle that no one ever saw but the priests that went into the tabernacle. Further instructions for the table of showbread. The only ones who ate of this bread were the priests. The community at large, they never tasted of this bread. Then there's the curious case of the half-Hebrew man who blasphemed and cursed the name of Hashem. What is this all about, and why is the punishment so severe for this crime that is recorded? And then finally, there's the general principles of judgment that's to be applied by judges any time that someone kills or injures a person or an animal. Now, I've made the assertion many times now that this final portion of Leviticus is all about communal worship of Hashem, but this chapter seems to fly in the face of that assertion. And so now, it's on me to make my case. First, let's remember back in chapter 17 and 18 when Leviticus transitions into the topic of holiness. How did the text first approach the topic? It did so by first addressing the opposite of holiness, defilement. We find something similar going on in this chapter. What is a requirement that must be met before a community or a nation can be said to exist? That community must have leadership. Because the fact of the matter is that without leadership, there's not community. In leadership on the scale of a nation such as Israel, it occurs in several ways. There's the leadership of the worship, the religious authority who represents God to the people and the people to God. We find in this chapter, in the high priest is represented in the menorah, and in the remainder of the priesthood is represented in the showbread. And then the leadership of the elders and judges in the community, the people who are to keep the order in the community and settle disputes among the people. These leaders set rules and act as judges and impose penalties and payments upon those who break the rules that have been set forth. And the Torah addresses both aspects of the leadership of the nation, the religious leadership and the rules, and the governmental leadership and their rules. And in each of these sections, the community is ever-present in the text. In the first section in the menorah, in verse 2, it's the congregation that's commanded to bring the oil for the lamp. The community provides the oil, but this oil is used for a lamp that they're never going to see. The resources of the people given for worship, but not for personal enjoyment. The high priest, on the other hand, is given only more responsibility in his role as leader. He is to use the resources that the people give properly, and only for the purpose that they were given. Now, I want to take a second while we're here and make an aside. There are some who look at the presence of the menorah and the table of showbread here at the beginning of chapter 24, and they use these passages in problematic ways. These few verses seem so out of place, and they recognize that the festivals, well, they just were addressed in the text. And so the assumption is that either these verses are out of place or scattershot with no connective theme, or they are incomplete, as the rest of the tabernacle articles are not dressed at all. And so they make the case that these verses are not, in fact, out of place. They're here very specifically and for a specific reason. Then they'll point to these verses and make the claim that these verses are here as a veiled inclusion of Hanukkah and Purim into the festival cycle. They'll say something along the line of, well, God knew that these festivals would come along, and he wanted to legitimize them when they did. 
And so these sections, they're tacked on to the end of the festivals in order to give that legitimacy to these future festivals. Even to the point where they'll then hold up these other festivals as God-commanded festivals rather than traditional festivals. So why do the menorah and the showbread represent these? Well, the statement is made is because Hanukkah has come to be celebrated with a nine-branch candlestick. And so speaking of the menorah is a nod to this future celebration. And the bread, it recognizes that the community of Israel will be present before God always. And Purim celebrates the salvation of Israel from complete destruction, so that there would continue to be a community to be present before God. Now, if you take this view, I'm not going to say that it isn't true. Perhaps that can be read into the text, but I believe it to be just that. Reading what you want back into the text, rather than pulling out from the text what it is actually talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. I also don't take the stance that these are purely Jewish holidays or that we should not celebrate these holidays because they're not specifically commanded in the Torah. There are some who discard these two holidays and they make the claim that to celebrate them is to add to the Torah. I simply recommend that if we choose to keep these holidays, as my family and I do, that we don't elevate them to the status of commanded festivals. Recognize that they are tradition and only that. They're like Thanksgiving or the 4th of July. They are traditional holidays, nothing more. In my opinion, both sides, the side that says that these holidays are commanded and they point here for the legitimization from the Torah, and the side that says that we should have nothing to do with these festivals because that's adding to Torah. I think both sides miss the point. Anyway, that's enough of my soapbox. Back to the texts. So after the menorah, we then read of the table of showbread, the, the bread of the face or the presence of God. On this table, there are the 12 loaves of bread split into two stacks or rows of six. And these loaves, they represent the people of Israel, the entire community of God basking in his presence. Once again, these loaves of bread, however, are not something that the community could partake of. Once again, we read of a benefit of leadership. The priests were to eat of the bread, weekly, on the Sabbath, in the holy place. Why could no one else eat of this bread? Well, because it's holy. It's basked in Hashem's holiness for an entire week, and the community at large, while they had been granted holiness, they had not been granted that level of holiness. They could not enter into the holy place, and they could not eat of the food that had been resting in the holy place. But the fact of the matter is that communal worship of Hashem is not limited to the priesthood, and so for a short time, Leviticus takes a break from the tabernacle and the worship practices associated with the tabernacle, and it addresses the role of governmental leadership, ensuring that the worship of Hashem is done properly. And more importantly, that the governmental leadership is responsible for the application of the commands and the implementation of enforcement in the community apart from the tabernacle grounds. And so when it comes to capital punishment for a religious offense, the elders and the judges, they need to get involved in the decision. And that's what we find here. In verse 10, we read that the man that is involved in the snippet of case law is not a full-blood Israelite. He was half Egyptian and half of the tribe of Dan. He was considered a ger among the community, not necessarily a native-born or an Azrak. How do we know? Well, because it specifically stated that this man and a man of Israel fought in the camp. 
his lineage is apparently a big enough deal to make this distinction, that he is not one of us. Now, in the course of the fight, the Egyptian man cursed and blasphemed the name of Hashem. Now, there are several things to address here. Beginning here, but then later in the chapter, there's a recognition that we would all do well to recognize. Where a person came from, their lineage, their heritage, these things do not exempt a person from the expectations of the Torah. If a person has joined themselves to the congregation of Israel by joining the covenant of Hashem, then regardless of where they are from, they are part of the community. For many of us today, that seems elementary, but in the time of honor and shame and tribalism, this was a big deal. Separation along family, tribal, and national lines was central to life. Added to this, not only as a foreigner a part of the community of Israel, if they join themselves to Israel as a gare, they're also held to the same law. This is something that we read of throughout the Torah, but that we see explicitly stated here in verse 22. You are to have one right ruling for the stranger and for the native. I am Hashem, your Elohim. There is one judgment for everyone, regardless of origin. Second, we need to ask the question, what is blasphemy? Now, to begin with, we need to look at the Hebrew word that is translated as blaspheme. The word in question is nakav, a word that at its root can mean to pierce or to perforate, to bore, or a point. Now, why the definition of a point? Well, apparently this word can be used to mean to pluck off or to take one of a multitude out of the assembly. How are these ideas related? Well, when you pierce, perforate, or bore a hole in something, what are you doing? You are creating a hole in something. We see this word used in this way in the following verses. Haggai 1.6 You have sown much, but brought in a little. Eat, but do not have enough. Drink, but you are not filled with drink. Clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Holes. Nakav. Or Second Kings 12.9 And Yehoiada the priest took a chest, and he bored a hole in its lid, and he set it beside the altar, on the right side as one comes into the house of Hashem. And the priest who guarded the door put there all the silver that was brought into the house of Hashem. Among many others, where you can see very clearly the idea of a hole being bored. So what happens when you pluck a grape or a head of grain, or even appoint a person to a position, you create a hole where that thing was before. Now we see this word used in this way in the following verses. Numbers one seventeen, And Moshe and Aaron took these men who were called by name. First Chronicles 12.31 And the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come up and to set up David to rule. Or Ezra 8.20, And of the Nethanim whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them designated by name. So this is the idea of appointing someone, or putting someone in place, or designating them for a purpose. So how does any of this have to do with blasphemy? Well, when we look at the usage of this word in Scripture, we find that it can apply to any kind of slander. 
such as Proverbs 24, 24. He who says to the wrong, you are righteous, peoples curse him, nakab him, and nations despise him. Or Job 3, 8. Let not those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to stir up Leviathan. Literally, let him blaspheme, or nakav, the accursed day. Or Job 5.3 I myself have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly his home was nakav, cursed. So this word can be used to describe any kind of curse or slander, as well as being used to denote the special status of being chosen from many. So in this case, the word definitely means a curse because of its proximity to the word kalal and because of the form that it takes. Now in Judaism, this passage and the fact that this man blasphemed the name of Hashem was so significant that over time it became a halakha that the name of God was never to be spoken or even to be written. The thought was that if a person never spoke the name, then blaspheming the name would be impossible. As a corollary, if someone were to write the name and the thing that the name was written on were destroyed in any way, then it was thought that in this case too, the name of Hashem would be blasphemed. And so for centuries and millennia and even today, the name of Hashem has been forbidden to be spoken or written in Judaism. Now, replacement words are used in place of the name. Titles like Adonai or Hashem, like I use in this. The English titles then carry on this tradition with the use of the word LORD, all capitals. When it comes to writing the name, now the convention is taken of simply writing two yods as a placeholder for the yod he vav he of the name. If you take this stance on the name, wonderful. I have no problem with anyone who takes this approach to the name of Hashem. But at the same time, I ask that you don't hold others to the same standard. The Bible has many other passages that specifically say that we are to speak the name, and it recounts numerous times when people would swear by the name of Hashem, using the phrase, as Hashem lives. So while on the topic of blasphemy, let's address a New Testament passage that speaks on blasphemy and see if our understanding of it as a curse fits. Matthew twelve twenty two through 32 Then they brought to him one who was demon-possessed, blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the blind and dumb man both spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and said, Is this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This one does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Moving on to verse 27. Yeshua said, And if I, by Beelzebul, do cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because of this, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then continuing on in verse 31. Because of this I say to you, all sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven men. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. In this passage, Yeshua casts demons out of a blind and dumb man. In Judaism of the first century, this was thought to be impossible. If the man cannot see and cannot hear, then he cannot have demons cast out of him. This became one of the four signs that the sages that preceded Yeshua stated that the Messiah would do, which is why the crowd then identifies him as the son of David. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, they could not allow this man to be the Messiah. And so they make the accusation that this feat was accomplished by the power of the enemy, Hasatan, Beelzebub. And after a short discussion about whose power it is that casts out demons, Yeshua makes a very serious claim. Every blasphemy can be forgiven but one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In this specific case, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was accomplished by attributing the power of the Holy Spirit to the enemy. Now this statement raised the power of Hasatan, and it made him the ultimate authority over demons. And it removed the authority over demons and sickness and death from the place where all authority has been vested. This statement of the Pharisees slandered the Holy Spirit, which is, by definition, blasphemy. This is one sin that will not be forgiven by God, and it is this sin that's being expounded upon in this chapter. This Egyptian man both slandered and cursed. Not a curse as in speaking an enchantment or calling something a curse, but rather a curse as to simply make light of, to make it of no account, to make a thing trifling. Now, there are some who make the claim that this was a common practice in Egypt, to curse or to make light of the names of their gods. I've found no evidence to support this claim other than the claims made by various commentators on scripture. Regardless, when the people heard this, they immediately put the man under guard and they sought out the leadership to discover what was to be done with him. Because the covenant that they had all signed up for was clear. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: Do not revile an Elohim nor curse a ruler of your people. The rule is in place, but there was no punishment prescribed for this crime. And so the people didn't know how to handle this. And so they took another cue from that covenant at Sinai, and they did what it said there. Exodus 22, verse 7 through 8. When a man gives silver or goods to his neighbor to guard it, and it's stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he repays double. If the thief is not found, then the master of his house shall be brought before Elohim to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. The principle at play here is that when you don't know for sure what to do in regards to justice, then you are to bring the person who's been accused before God. Now, in many translations in this verse in Exodus, the word Elohim is translated as judge. But in this example, that's an inaccurate translation. Because in Leviticus 24.12, it says, And they put him under guard, that it might be declared to them at the mouth of Hashem. That verse in Exodus is specifically speaking of bringing the person before Hashem to find out what he would have them do to the offender. And in answer to this, in this case, the death penalty is declared. Now this is significant as there's a lot going on in this verse as well. The punishment of stoning, it's a communal act. It's not something that was engaged in by any individual. And there were stipulations as to how this type of punishment was to be enacted. Deuteronomy 17, 6-7 At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is to die be put to death. He is not to be put to death by the mouth of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and the hand of all the people last. So you shall purge evil from your midst. 
The ones who were to throw the first stone when it came to stoning a person were to be those who witnessed the offense in the first place. Then the rest of the community was to participate. Too often we as modern people, we read of stoning and we ascribe to the process a sort of a mob mentality sort of event. And partially that's because that seems to be what occurred at the stoning of Stephen or when Paul was stoned in Lystra in Acts 14. But the instructions for stoning are given in such a way as to not be about mob justice, but about the proper enacting of justice. The person who was being stoned was to be accused by more than one person. The accused was to then face the judges and be convicted. And then the accusers, the witnesses, even the victims, were to be the first to enact the punishment. And all of this was to be accomplished publicly. Accusations in a court case were not to be handled privately. The accused had the right to face their accusers, and execution of the condemned was not to be a private affair. So when we encounter the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8, what was it that Yeshua declared to those who were accusing her? John 8.37 And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the Torah of Moshe commanded us that such a one should be stoned. What then do you say? And this they said, trying him, to, so that they might accuse him. But Yeshua, bending down, he wrote on the ground with the finger, as though he did not hear. But as they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I've heard all sorts of takes on this passage, but the fact of the matter is, is that those who brought her to Yeshua were breaking the Torah of capital punishment. Aside from the fact that at the time, capital punishment could not be enacted by the religious leaders according to Roman law. What Yeshua was doing here was to point out that these men who were accusing this woman and advocating for her death were guilty of transgressing the very same Torah as they did so. None of them was witness to the act. They were her accusers, but they were not her witnesses. The one who was to be the first to stone the woman was those who were witness to the act. Now again, I've heard all sorts of takes on what it was that Yeshua wrote in the ground while waiting for the accusers to walk away. Perhaps it was Deuteronomy 17, 6-7. The hand of the witnesses were to be the first against her. Now back to Leviticus 24 and verse 16, the text then takes on a more general tone in regards to how judgment should be enacted. And once again, unfortunately, this passage is often misunderstood. This passage or ideal is not a command as we understand commands. It's a limitation or a guideline on how to apply justice. This passage is also not literal in application. How do I know? Well, this is not the first time that we've read this passage. Exodus 21, 23 through 27 says, But if there is injury, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, lash for lash. And when a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he's to let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he's to let him go free for the sake of his tooth. The eye was destroyed, but the just payment is not an eye. It's freedom. 
We must read on when we encounter topics such as this to get a full understanding of the application. But the fact is that we as humans, we tend to be unequal when we enact justice. We're either too lenient or we're too harsh. This principle states simply that we are to act in justice when we must enact justice. Justice is to be acted out in equal measures. But there is to be justice in the case of actual harm. Yeshua addresses this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the wicked. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And he who wishes to sue you and take away your inner garment, let him have your outer garment as well. And whoever compels you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wishes to borrow from you, do not turn away. This principle in first century Judaism had been extended to each man, and it had become the justification for getting vengeance at any time that a person felt harmed, whether there was actual harm or not. Rather than being the governing principle of sentencing for those who had been found guilty, this was used to justify seeking personal justice. Now, I've covered this before, but we tend to forget, so bear with me as we go through this one more time. In each of the three cases that Yeshua mentions, is there any actual harm or crime being committed? No. In the ancient Near East, the left hand was the hand of shame. It was the hand that you used to do shameful things. So if you're being slapped on the right cheek, what's happening? You're being hit by someone's left hand. You're being shamed. Either that or you're being backhanded. It's not an attack. It's a shaming act. So if someone sues you for your inner garment, but not your outer garment, are they seeking justice? No, they're seeking to shame you. And if someone compels you to walk a mile, presumably in order to pack their gear for them, then go ahead and carry it too. What Yeshua is saying here is not that this principle of justice has been done away with. He's making the point that this principle of justice belongs in a court of law and not on the street. He's not making the point that we should not defend ourselves if our lives are actually in danger. And on a deeper level, he is making the point that when you seek to interpret the Torah and apply it to the situations that you find yourself in, do so in context. The context of this passage, as well as Exodus 21 and later in Deuteronomy 19, when it's repeated once more, is that of justice. Legal, court of law type justice. This point is so important because it's easy to take the approach of soundbite theology and simply rip scripture out of context and apply it to various situations just because it supports what you already want to do. But to interpret scripture in this way is just as good as not keeping it in the first place. We do have to be extra careful, and I'm just as guilty. We have to be extra careful in how we interpret and apply various commands and phrases. To misapply a command is just as wrong as to not apply it at all. So this chapter, this confusing and seemingly misplaced chapter, it's not so misplaced after all. This chapter is just where it should be as it describes the worship of Hashem in community. Because a community, a nation, a tribe, or a people group, they are not these things without leaders. And a nation such as this needs both types of leaders, 
priests to teach and to lead the worship practices of the people, and a government to act as judges to carry out sentencing. And while so far leadership as described in Leviticus has been limited to the priesthood, here we see that when it comes to the community enactment of worship and justice, without leadership, without proper leadership, a community cannot truly worship. And for where we are today, well, our governments are not guided by the Torah. Can we truly worship? Yes. We simply have to join ourselves to the high king, who is also our high priest. The government was put on his shoulders. He is our king and the head of our government. Then the elders in our bodies, the elders in our churches, they then act as judges for community matters. We cannot enact capital punishment, just as Yeshua and the religious leaders could not while under Roman rule. But we can remove a person from our midst if they are found to be engaging in unrepented sin. 1 Corinthians 5 speaks on this. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13 says, I wrote to you in my letters not to keep company with those who whore, and I certainly did not mean with those of this world who whore, or with the greedy of gain, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone called a brother, if he is one who hoards, or is greedy of gain, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges those who are outside, and put away the wicked one from among you. This is the way that we can work within governmental structures today. And we must have these structures in place to protect the community and to enable them to properly engage in this practice of worship. Because it is vital that leaders in the community of God exhibit proper leadership to keep their communities on the path of life. So Dereshchai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.